in three, two, one. Hi, and welcome to this special COVID-19 edition of PRMC on Point. I'm Roger Fallabout, Director of Strategic Communications at Peninsula Regional Medical Center and across the Peninsula Regional Health System. On the program with us today is Dr. Dennis Killian, our Vice President of Clinical Operations for PRMC. Dennis, thanks for being here. Good to have you here. Yeah, appreciate the opportunity, Roger. Thank you. All right. So COVID-19 is the big topic of the day. It's the big topic of the month, and it probably will be for a few more months. We got a pandemic going on across the country. There's no question about that, and people are dying. Why is this such a wicked virus, and why does it seem that no one is immune to it? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and I'll try to answer it the best that I can. Um, you know, I mean, you know, we're all dealing with this right now. And, you know, if you talk to a lot of the nation experts, they'll say this virus is pretty slippery. You say, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, it spreads pretty easily. And there's a few different factors that you look at when you see about, about a virus spreading. Um, some of the variables include like a reproduction number. Like that means if somebody gets infected, what's the propensity for them to affect some, uh, infect somebody else? And that number is anywhere between 1.5 to 3.5 people. But nobody really knows right now. You know, we're still kind of learning a lot about this virus and they're trying to understand other variables as well. They've done a lot of comparisons comparing um, COVID to the original SARS. I don't know if you remember SARS back in 2002, 2003. Mm -hmm. A lot of people kind of forgot about that. That's a coronavirus as well. Uh, Very similar in terms of, uh, you know, the genetic makeup as this one here. So there's been a lot of comparisons that have been made. Um, I recently looked at a recent New England Journal of Medicine article in the 17th of March. They were comparing the two different coronaviruses. So they were comparing the original SARS to COVID-19. And it, this is where you're kind of hearing some things out in social media now. They're saying, well, if somebody were to cough, how long are viral particles available in aerosol? They're saying up to three hours. You may have heard that before, right? Mm-hmm, so that's where that came from. Yes. So they're saying both COVID and SARS is about the same. Um, and they're saying, well, if somebody were to cough and you had viral particles that were shed, how long do they stay on inanimate objects like a table or things like that if you don't clean them? And they're saying, well, maybe up to three days, depending on the material. Well, that's, again, the same as SARS. So then people are wondering, well, if these parameters are similar between COVID and SARS, why did SARS die down through social isolation and other things? And we're not seeing the same with COVID. And the authors kind of hypothesized around that. They don't really have a distinct answer. But one of the driving facts, factors that they said was you have asymptomatic people with COVID who are spreading the disease. They just don't know that they're spreading it. And that did not happen with SARS. So they're saying that was a kind of a differentiating factor. But overall, I mean, to answer your question about the spreadability of COVID, I think it's very similar to influenza or flu when we look at a lot of these different parameters. As nasty as this is, though, it responds very well to soap and water uh, and, and sanitizing your hands. I mean, that seems to be able to wipe it out pretty quickly, right? Sure. I mean, you know, hand hygiene is, is extremely important. Um, you know, it's preferred to use water and soap whenever you can. Um, when you look at the composition of the viral particles, it's ba- basically uh, a lipid or fat, uh, you know, over, over top of, of, of RNA. So by using soap, it really kind of basically takes care of those viral particles very well. That's the preferred method for hand sanitation. Um, if secondarily is an alcohol cleanser, 60% or higher alcohol content in at least 20 seconds of contact. So I know that there are a couple of drugs out there, a cocktail, if you will, that people have been working with where, where maybe this combined with this seems to be having a, a, a positive effect to some degree. Can you speak about that? Well, I'm a scientist by background, Roger, and 
know, as a scientist, we want to have that hard evidence, kind of show the proof, especially when it comes to treating patients. And we just don't have that right now. So with that caveat, let me go into some of the treatments that you may have heard out in the, in the community. Uh, even the president's mentioned a few different treatments and stuff. I'm going to kind of run through the different options that we're looking at right now. Yeah, please do. But I want folks to know, like, there is no magic bullet out there, okay? There is no certainty that we know this medicine is going to work. There are trials going on globally right now, and we'll talk about vaccines maybe a little bit later, but we'll talk about some of the other compounds that folks are using right now. Yeah, please do. Uh, one of the ones that it's most popular that you're hearing is chloroquine. Uh, chloroquine is a, is a very old agent. It was used back in the 1600s. It was, they, they derived it from uh, some kind of tree bark. Um, later on, they were able to isolate that in the 1800s as the chloroquine molecule, and it was approved by the FDA in the early 1900s. It's primarily used to treat malaria, and it's a pretty toxic agent. Um, because of that toxicity, it's really not used much anymore. In fact, there's only a handful of manufacturers that make it. Um, but it, it's, it's a pretty cheap medicine to be had, and so folks kind of looked at that molecule as maybe being a treatment for COVID because it's cheap. Um, it's readily available. It, it is already FDA approved for malaria. It's not FDA approved for, you know, COVID treatment, but some folks were potentially looking at that compound. One of the things folks are a little cautious of is the toxicity. We don't want to give a patient a medicine that we're not sure if it works for COVID and it makes them worse. So, so overall clinicians are a little leery about that compound. Um, a related compound that you're hearing a lot of buzz about is closely related to chloroquine. It's called hydroxychloroquine. And actually, if you look at the structures, they're very similar. It just has a hydroxy group on a tertiary amine. It's the only difference. Um, it's metabolized a little bit differently. It's also used for malaria. It's FDA approved for malaria. It's also FDA approved for a few autoimmune disorders like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Well, the in vitro studies, and when I say in vitro, that means in a test tube, has shown, you know, some, it's shown efficacy against COVID. So folks are kind of thinking, does that translate into, you know, uh, treatment success in the body in vivo? And we're not sure yet. Um, there's been, you know, uh, some small trials that have been done, very small clinical trials. They're not really like randomized types of trials. And you're seeing a lot of anecdotal evidence out there going, you know, this patient was on their deathbed and we gave him this medicine and he seemed to improve. So that evidence there and plus the toxicity for hydroxychloroquine is a lot lower than, than chloroquine. So we know if we give it and it doesn't work, then we're at least not making the patient any worse. Sure. Um, so, and related to that, there's been a small study in France where a doctor was given hydroxychloroquine plus an antibiotic called azithromycin or Zithromax. People refer to it as ZPAC. ZPAC. ZPAC, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's shown some promise, but, uh, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic, Roger. I mean, you know, this, the evidence is extremely preliminary, and I don't want folks to kind of be their takeaway going, this is the medicine that's like going to fix everything and make people better. We just don't know that yet. Um, in terms of how this is incorporated in the treatment protocols, we're really reserving it for more higher risk patients. So if you're, if you're being quarantined at home, or you're not in the hospital and you're gravely ill, this medicine's really not an option for you. Um, there are, you know, and as, as I kind of go through the list, there are other medicines that folks are looking at. Mm -hmm. um, one of them would be, um, uh, remdesivir. Um, this is a medicine that's currently not approved by the FDA at all. It's under investigation by Gilead Pharmaceuticals. It's in phase three trials. So the only way to get that medicine is you have to be at a site that's doing a phase three trial. At one point, the company was given it for compassionate use, which means you could reach out to them if a patient was in dire need of it. 
but due to the demand right now in the current pandemic, that's no longer an option, unfortunately. Um, another medicine that's being looked at is tocalizumab or Actemra. This is an interleukin-6 inhibitor. Um, it's a pretty expensive monoclonal antibody, about $1,000 a dose or so. And the evidence for that one's still kind of very short as well. We're only maybe reserving that for extremely sick patients that may be near dying. So that's another option. Um, let's see, you know, maybe one other drug that they're looking at, not available in the U.S. It's a Japanese antiviral drug called Favipravir, I believe is the name of it. Uh, they're doing some trials in China, and that's shown some promise as well. Um, I mean, right now, everybody's kind of geared up trying to do clinical trials and trying to get the evidence. Uh, I think the best bet folks are looking at now is the hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin in the United States. These drugs are readily available. And there is some concern, you know, is that going to take away from patients that may be receiving those drugs for other purposes? Yeah. Now, since these are FDA approved already, do they have to go through clinical trial again? if we create this, this cocktail combining the two drugs? Sure. I mean, that's a great question, Roger. I mean, right now, these drugs are FDA-approved for other indications. I mentioned malaria for the chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, the azithromycin for a variety of different infectious disease purposes. Yeah, I mean, the, the goal would be that if these medicines showed, you know, efficacy towards COVID, that it would get that additional approval by the FDA for that. So that's kind of a, st a stamp of approval or a stamp of seal by the FDA going, hey, these drugs can be used for this. Sure. What do you think? What's your gut feeling about this? Do you think there is some value, maybe some positive uh, outcome with the combination of these drugs and, and using them to treat COVID-19? I mean, it's, it's a great question. And I mean, I think we're going to have to see where the clinical trials take us. I mean, we use data as clinicians to help guide decision making. We're, we're, like I mentioned before, I mean, we're flying by the seat of our pants right now. I mean, yeah. we really are. Um, we want to be cautious with the approach and we don't want to do any more harm. So if we can use drugs that have limited toxicity, like the hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, and there's some anecdotal evidence, whether we've seen it or other colleagues have seen it, we're, we're saying, let's give that a try right now. That's better than nothing. Because other than that, it's supportive care for these patients. So the best end result for us is probably still a vaccine. What's the process of getting a vaccine through the testing phase, through the clinical trials, and then out on the market for people to use. Yeah, I mean, there's different methodologies that can be used to create a vaccine. And if you look globally right, right now, there's probably over 20 different efforts um, in terms of a race to try to create a vaccine. So we have multiple people working to try to do the same thing. Um, I mean, it takes time for any type of drug development, including the vaccine, you know, from those initial stages of developing the molecule, testing it in animals, humans, and trials. It's a pretty long process, Roger, as you know, even if we're promising agents. Sure. How confident are you that we'll get there? I'm, I, th I think it's going to happen. I mean, I do. I think really the question mark is what kind of time are we talking about? Mm -hmm. And, you know, from what I've heard, um, you know, and what I've read, I've been doing a lot of reading about this. I mean, you're looking anywhere from 12 to 18 months. So 12 months being pretty aggressive. In some cases, maybe even getting some emergent use in the fall of this year. So one particular company, uh, Moderna, out of Boston, Massachusetts, they're the furthest ahead in the United States right now. They've actually started phase one testing in humans. And phase one is basically giving the vaccine to healthy adults and seeing how they react to it. Um, their particular vaccine is derived from messenger RNA. So it's basically a piece of, of the viral R RNA 
And we're seeing if that can elicit the appropriate immune response to patients to keep them safe. And, and, you know, like a lot of this, you know, we've been kind of, you know, going really fast with things and we don't want to make a mistake and make things worse. In this particular instance with Moderna, we've actually skipped the animal testing. So that's really kind of an unheard of. We've never done that before, but they're trying to really expedite the process. What we don't want is to give a vaccine that can actually cause more problems so that when, you know, you think you're creating an immune response against COVID, it could actually potentiate COVID if somebody mm -hmm. gets it. So we want to be safe and cautious, but try to do it as expedited as we can. Sure. As you mentioned, your whole career, your whole life has been based in science around pharmaceuticals. If we get to that point where we get a vaccine and it's gone through all this process, how confident are you that this thing will indeed work? Yeah, I mean, you know, and again, this is my own opinion with all that, these that's things. That's all I'm so, asking, yeah, right. <laughs> sure. Of course. Um, I do think it's going to take a vaccine to, to curb COVID. Um, I, do, I do feel like personally this is going to change from a pandemic to an endemic infection, and endemic meaning that, that this uh, – particular virus is going to stay around. I don't think we're going to eradicate it through show social distancing. I think we missed the mark with that in terms of what I'd seen through like herd, basically by, you know, I think, I think we missed the mark in terms of the number of people that have it at this point. So I do think it's not going to kind of disappear from society completely. Um, you know, there's been a lot of speculations around what would be the impact to the weather to this virus. I hear that question a lot because, you know, Generally, in hotter climates, you do see a decline in, in respiratory viral transmission, such as influenza, right? It dies down mm -hmm. in the summer. Sure. There's a few factors in terms of why that happens. We're not going to go into that. But there's a few different um, you know, areas of the, of the world right now, like Australia and Brazil. They're in their warmer climate, and they're still seeing similar types of transmission events right now. So I don't think that's going to impact things. Um, and then, you know, is there, what if, you know, I think the other question that we ask is, what about when folks stop the social distancing and come back together? What's going to happen then? Are we going to see a surge? And I think that's a great question as well. I think we're really looking at China and kind of seeing what happens over in China right now because China, you know, did extreme social distancing. And you know how their government worked over there. I mean, mm -hmm. it was extreme. But now they're trying to get back to some type of normalcy. So we really want to see, are they going to see a surge? So we're kind of looking across the world here. We're trying to share experiences from various continents to see how folks are doing. So best advice we can offer to people right now, I know we're, we talk about the importance of hand washing and proper hand hygiene and social distancing, staying at home if you can, is really, is that really the best thing we can all be doing think, at this point? Yeah, I think, I think folks need to take this seriously. I know sometimes you still hear people thinking that this isn't a serious thing or this isn't going to impact me. It granted, most of the deaths that we've seen have been in folks with, you know, people, patients with comorbid, comorbid conditions and elderly but there's, this has really impacted healthy folks, young folks as well. Um, you know, we see this, and we're tr still trying to understand the reasons in terms of why that happens. So everybody really needs to take this seriously through the social distancing, through the hand washing, and hopefully we can kind of get through this together. It's really going to take everyone doing the same thing to get through this. Dennis, thanks. Appreciate it. No, no problem. Good, good to have you on the program today. Yeah, thanks. And that will do it for this special COVID-19 edition of ERMC on point. As always, if you're looking for the latest information on COVID, you can visit our website, peninsula.org. We have a page dedicated specifically to that. If you have questions in the community, Peninsula Regional Medical Center and the Wicomico County Health Department have combined to open a COVID-19 hotline. You can reach us at 410-912-6889. 
Thanks for watching, and we'll get you again on the next edition of PRMC On Point.